0: We are so excited to announce that the Remedial Herstory Project will be having our first annual summer retreat coming to you in August of 2021. Join us here in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. Kick back, relax, enjoy the spa and a little bit of women's history. We are so excited to be bringing some of the best women's historians in the world to you. They are here to teach you the bits of women's history that you may have missed in history class, and we are here to guide you on the tools that you will need to get them into the classroom. The retreat is 50% pedagogy and 50% women's history. You will leave with dozens of printed lesson plans, learning materials, and tools that you can use. You can see the entire schedule of events on our website, as well as the names of some of the historians who will be presenting www.remedialherstory.com, look for the page about the summer retreat. Come relax and enjoy the White Mountains of New Hampshire with us. Hey, Brooke. Want to tell her what's happening in today's episode? Today, we are going to be talking about the founding documents of women's history.
1: Founding documents.
0: Founding documents.
1: Deal. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Hello, and welcome to Remedial Her Story, The Other 50%, the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert,
0: and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. Enlightenment and Women's Founding Documents. Okay. So, Brooke, on our podcast thus far, we have spent a great deal of time enumerating all the ways in which history teachers could do better at including Women's history. Mm -hmm. And I feel like we need to remind ourselves and everyone that this is not only a problem in history class. There are uh, lots of theories and scientific breakthroughs that are talked about in science classes. And those theories are named after famous men and completely ignore the women that helped. Cool, 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 promote cool, cool. that theory or may have even <laughs> invented it and didn't get this is it. my surprise face yeah uh, shocking information <laughs> um, and uh, this is true in math as well and lots of the early mathematicians were educated by women and that's should be frustrating to many of us um, but in in sticking to the social science theme mm-hmm. in civics classes as well as literature classes one of the standards thats pretty much across the board is to first evaluate founding documents. And so when you hear founding documents and when I hear founding documents, we think of that sort of like of the United States right yeah so Constitution. you think Declaration of Independence the Constitution you might even go back further right like the Magna Carta the Charter Oak yeah <laughs> <laughs> yes um the Mayflower compact yes right? oh, yeah. and what's important to remember about every one of the documents that I just listed is that they were documents written by men signed by men um and mm-hmm. the ha- not not one of them had the intention of including 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 women in this like new system that they were building. They're not part of our society. Right. So those, actually all of those that we just mentioned are part of an emerging, either an emerging enlightenment or right in the midst of enlightenment thinking. And, um, And so I want to hone in on that time period and look at some writing that women are producing about their station and then end with the Seneca Falls Declaration of Sentiments, which is in U.S. history pointed to as this sort of founding document. Um, And I want to be clear right from the start, with almost all of these, how widespread they were in their time is debated, but... They were seen by later generations as important and significant, Mm -hmm. and foundations upon which women's liberation ideas were built. Yeah. So, um, all right. So let's kick things off with a woman named Olympe de Guiche. Olympe is spelled O-L-Y-M-P-E, but in French it's pronounced Olympe. And she is obviously a woman from France. She is living during the French Revolution. And so let's get a little bit of background on the French Revolution. This takes place shortly after the American Revolution. In AP World History, we refer to this unit as sort of a revolutionary. Unit because there are a whole series of revolutions that occur around the world. The French Revolution is largely caused because the King of France, King Louis XVI, and his wife Marie Antoinette have essentially bankrupted the government. And um, France at the time had these three estates. The nobility um, represented this, had the France at the time had these three estates. The first estate was the Roman Catholic clergy that lived in France. The second estate was the nobility. And the third estate was basically everybody else. And everybody else was paying outrageous taxes to let the upper class, those those second the first and second estates uh, live their wealthy lifestyles. And this was just really unequal um, and, and, and not sustainable system. Um, eventually, this leads to uprisings uh, by the people of France against the government. The nobility in France refused to pay any additional taxes, and the peasants by this point simply could not pay any more taxes. The people of France representing the third estate, petitioned the government and King Louis denied this petition on June 17th, 1789. And so what the third estate did is a group of men got together and they formed the National Assembly. And King Louis basically said they can't do that, and he sends in the army to try to disband it, and this just lights a fire in the French people. And on July 14th, a mob stormed the Bastille prison in Paris, and they tried to take weapons, they freed prisoners, and this was the beginning of the French Revolution. Now, it's important to point out, because a lot of historians do not in their classrooms, that women were instrumental in this movement from the beginning. It is women who are oftentimes faced with the burdens of the taxation in the marketplace. And in the fall of that year, women actually had a full-on bread riot. This bread riot is oftentimes cast by history teachers as sort of this like random riot that occurred, but actually it was a well-organized protest by women. Um, there were drums that, that, that brought everybody together in unison marching on the market square. And there were about 7,000 people involved, men and women, but led mostly by women to, um, protest the price of bread and, and the scarcity of bread in France. Um, these women need to feed their families and they can't because the the economy is is in terrible disarray. So, It's interesting and I'll just, you know, we're a podcast here talking about women being left out and PBS has this whole article that's pretty comprehensive on um, the French Revolution. And I will cite this in our show notes and they completely leave out the bread riot, which most people consider one of the most important events of the French Revolution. And um, it's, it's a massive riot. It's, it's a a huge and a crucial part of Western history broadly. So So the summer after the bread riot, the National Assembly creates a new constitution. The French citizens, as part of the National Assembly, drafted a document called the Declaration of the Rights of Man. And this is really important because Alain de Gouche is going to take some of the language from that document and apply it to women. And so they they write this declaration. The next summer, the National Assembly creates a new constitution and steals a lot of the ideas from the... Declaration of the Rights of Man and include it in this new constitution. So um, the new constitution basically strips King Louis of a lot of his authority and um, gave all legislative power to the National Assembly, to that former third estate, if you will. The anti-monarchy feelings of the French Revolution are very different than some of the other revolutions that occurred during this period, and King Louis and his wife Marie Antoinette and their children are all um, directly threatened by this revolution, and they can feel it. It is in the air, and so they try to flee, and that act of trying to flee gets them dubbed traitors, and there's a lot more to that story, but to simplify it, they are captured and beheaded. Now, here's where I'd like to bring in my lady... Uh, lampe de Gouche. lampe is a French revolutionary. She came from, she was an illegitimate child. She was from Southern France. She was a playwright and an activist and deeply involved in the French Revolution. She was a part of the Society of Republican and Revolutionary Women, which was a group of women in the French Revolution who formed to think about the rights of women. And um, they Tasked her with creating a document, writing a document um, that would represent them. So she did, and she stole the language that the male French revolutionaries were using and um, wrote her Declaration of the Rights of Woman and the Female Citizen. Now, this document is basically identical to the one that the men wrote, but this one includes women. And One author said, to highlight the confusing politics of the French Revolution, Gouche was hated on all sides. She was perceived as too radical by the moderates and as a royalist by the extreme left, probably because she dedicated the Declaration of Rights of Woman to Queen Marie Antoinette. Now, she did that because she was hoping that by by writing this piece and including the name Marie Antoinette, she could appeal to her to take up the cause of women's rights and, you know, poor women in particular, Um, and that certainly didn't happen, and neither women really benefited from this document being connected to them. So I want to pause really briefly and read a little bit from her Declaration of Rights of Women. She says, Mothers, daughters, sisters, female representatives of the nation ask to be constituted as a national assembly. Considering that ignorance, neglect, or contempt for the rights of women are not the sole causes of public misfortune and government corruption, they have resolved to set forth in a solemn declaration the natural, inalienable, and sacred rights of woman, so that by being constantly presented to all the members of the social body by this declaration, may always remind them of their rights and duties. So that by being liable at every moment to comparison with the aim of any and all political institution, the act of women and men's powers may be more fully respected, and so that being founded henceforward on simple and incontestable principles, the demands of the citizenesses may always tend toward maintaining the Constitution, good morals, and general welfare— In consequence, the sex that is superior in beauty, as in courage, needed in maternal suffering, recognizes and declares in the presence and under the auspices of the supreme being the following rights of woman and the citizeness. Woman is born free and remains equal to man in rights. Social distinctions may be based only on common utility. Liberty and justice consist in resorting all that belongs to another. Hence, the exercise of natural rights of woman has no other limits than those that the perpetual tyranny of man opposes to them. These limits must be reformed according to the laws of nature and reason. The safeguard of the rights of woman and the citizeness requires public powers. These powers are instituted for the advantage of all and not for the private benefit of those whom they are entrusted. The Constitution is null and void if the majority of individuals composing the nation has not cooperated in its drafting. And that part, that bullet, is probably the most important one for what comes next. She ends with, Women, wake up. The tossing of reason sounds throughout the universe. Recognize your rights. The powerful empire of nature is no longer surrounded by prejudice, fanaticism, superstition, and lies. The torch of truth has been dispersed on the clouds of folly and usurpation. Enslaved man has multiplied his force and needs yours to break his chains. Having become free, he has become unjust towards his companion. Oh, woman, woman, when will you cease to? be blind. What advantages have you gathered in the revolution? So those words are pretty bold and very important. Olympe de Gouche is arrested uh, shortly after writing this piece and among many others that she's writing during this period. She is unfortunately tied deeply to Marie Antoinette and is charged with treason in the tumultuous and and scary thing, which was the French Revolution. I read a transcript of her trial. It says that she was charged with having composed a work contrary to the expressed desire of the entire nation and directed against whatsoever might propose a form of government other than that of a republic. She was charged with having composed a work contrary to the expressed desire of the entire nation. They go through some of the documents that she wrote in order to better understand that. The public prosecutor started questioning her, and um, he says pretty overtly, there can be no mistaking the untrustworthy intentions of this criminal woman and her hidden motives when one observes her and all the works to which, at the very least, she lends her name, culminating and spewing out bile in large doses. She then eventually is asked some questions. She asserts that she is a faithful patriot to the revolution. Um, she says that she has always been involved in revolutionary acts, and that these documents she may have been mistaken, but they they were intended to be, you know, a, a, an addendum to this this revolution. Um, The person writing the transcript said that the accused, with respect to the facts she was hearing articulated against her, never stopped her smirking. Sometimes she shrugged her shoulders, then she clasped her hands and raised her eyes toward the ceiling of the room. Then suddenly she moved on to an expressive gesture showing astonishment. Then, gazing next at the court, she smiled at the spectators. Eventually, the judgment is passed. And she is proven guilty, condemned to punishment by death, at which point she says, but wait a second, I'm pregnant. And so they say, fine, we will we'll send a doctor, a surgeon to, to inspect you. They inspect her, they find that she is not pregnant and they execute her the next day. When they told her the verdict, she said, my enemies will not have the glory of seeing my blood flow. I am pregnant and will bear a citizen for the Republic. But nonetheless, the execution took place the next day around 4 p.m., and when she walked up the scaffold, she cried out to the people, children of the fatherland, you will avenge my death. And people around her apparently cried out, uh, vive la République, and um, she died. So, this is a really important moment in the French Revolution, and the rapid executions that begin to follow as Robespierre begins the reign of terror in the months and years that follows, between 14,000 and 40,000 French citizens are executed. And during this time, a Mary Wollstonecraft happens to be living in Paris, and so she becomes the second woman that I'd like to tell you about. The Remedial History Project is a nonprofit working to get women's history into the K-12 curriculum. Our goal is to create free learning materials for educators to use tomorrow. Head over to our website, www.remedialhistory.com, Download everything and give it to a friend. We need women's history in the classroom like yesterday. If you're not a history teacher and you wanna do something to help us out, head over to our store. We've got all sorts of fun things for you to peruse and all of that goes to supporting our mission. If you think what we're doing is needed, you can support the Remedial History Project by becoming a sponsor through Anchor or becoming a patron. Patrons get access to behind-the-scenes materials, gear, bonus episodes, and more. Most importantly, they're putting their money where their mouth is, and helping us get women's history into the classroom. Our history maker, Jeffrey. Our history heroes, Christian, Brooke, and Barbara. Our Herstorians, Jamie, Kent, Jenna, and Nancy. And our history allies, Nicole, Mark, Sarah, Leah, Anne, and Alicia. Thank you so much. You all make this show possible. I want to introduce you to a woman named Mary Wollstonecraft. She is British yep. and she wrote a piece called the vindication of the rights of women. Have you heard of this piece? I have,
1: and her she's bass.
0: Okay. So tell me what you know about her.
1: Um, I know that she was, uh, aristocratic though. She comes up from money. Um, so she was well-educated, well-read, um, felt like she had some power to speak, and she used it for a lot of good. She's written; she wrote that document mm-hmm. that's probably her most widely published. But what's there's another one that she produced.
0: There's a bunch. Um, Vindication of the Rights of Men, as well. Yeah. Um, which is interesting. She so she is uh, a writer, and um, she has a publisher that she works with yep. for years, um, and she. And and so that sort of gives her this platform and actually makes her pretty widely read in Mm -hmm. her time. So Mary Wollstonecraft was in Paris during the French Revolution and was around during the time when Olympe de Gouche was executed. And it is the spirit of the revolution and the execution of Lompe de Gouche that she writes her vindication of the rights of women. Now, she had already written The Vindication of the Rights of Men, which is a reaction and a commentary to build off of things that were being written by Edmund Burke and Thomas Paine um, out of this time. And so she was contributing her ideas and her interpretation of these Enlightenment ideas to the philosophical thought. And so her vindication of the rights of women are just an extension of those ideas and saying, yeah, all of that and add women. Mary Wollstonecraft, as a British citizen, was safe while in Paris because she had been in a relationship with an American man, and they faked a marriage, even though they weren't married, um, in order to protect her. They had a child, which was deemed illegitimate by society at that time, um, and eventually traveled back to Britain, and he sent her on a mission to Scandinavia, where she wrote a bunch of very emotional letters and pieces that were later published about love and emotion, and those were later read by a friend of hers who was also a journalist. The two of them um, fell in love and eventually got pregnant, and so they quickly got married. And when and during that time, they lived separately. They both wrote a bunch of pieces, and um, she had their child in August, They named their child Mary Wollstonecraft, and she died some days later from a fever that she got from childbirth. Now, her vindication of the rights of women is very differently received than a lump de Gouche. It was actually widely accepted. Only one person was really critical of it uh, when it was initially published. What happens is that when she dies, her husband posthumously publishes a bunch of her pieces and he writes basically a story of her life to try to support the cause of women, to basically say, look, she had this relationship with a guy who did not support her and their child and, um, and this is how, this is the plight of women. This is the plight of unmarried women and they don't have a lot of options and this is really problematic. And even though his intentions were good, the reception that this received in the community was to basically discredit her. Here is a woman who lived outside of societal norms and, um, you know, one evil human, I can't even think of a better way to describe him, one evil person said that her death and childbirth was basically God's punishment for her feminism, essentially. And, um, interestingly, her daughter, Mary Wollstonecraft, the second, if you will, um, goes on to write as well. And she writes a book called Frankenstein that all of us have heard of or seen or read in some shape or form. And the, um, American and world literature teacher down the hall um, told me that of that time period, she's the only one that continues to be read um, widely. In the U.S., the reaction is not as immediate, and um, but the ideas that are forth both in the rights of the female citizen as well as the vindication written later those same ideas are embedded into the Declaration of Sentiments that mm-hmm. is written at Seneca Falls um, 50 years later and so this document at the Declaration, uh, uh, the Declaration of Sentiments which is written at Seneca Falls, um, Seneca Falls Conference is convened by Lucretia Mott, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and some other abolitionists abolitionists turned suffragists, and they meet in upstate New York. And, um, this initial women's rights convention, um, is where they, they write this declaration and they basically say, uh, you know, stealing some of the ideas from these preceding enlightenment thinkers out of Europe, um, m- Man has not treated women well in this country. And um, they lay out a list of grievances just like the Declaration of Independence had done. I mean, it's
1: very organized.
0: <laughs> it's very organized. So I think these documents are just such a really powerful way to talk about the way the agency and the ways in which women have always er, or have advocated for themselves in the light of enlightenment thinking, in light of emerging democracies. And they should be things that students are reading and are analyzing in class, especially when they garnered such profound and horrifying reactions in their time. Right. The declaration of its sentiments, one thing that I find really interesting about that is that a lot of the women who signed it, actually, when they finally went home to their spouses or fathers or whatever, um, redacted their, their signing in the days that followed because they were like, ah, oh, just kidding. I, that was a little too bold of me. Um, interesting. it is interesting. And I think it, it, it shows how challenging it had been for women to stand up, um, and it, that document in particular, you know, again, wasn't that big of a deal in its time, arguably, but in retrospect, it became a big deal.
1: Well, yeah, because not only did you put your name behind it, you had to stand there with it and take the bullets and take the, the consequences of your name being on that document and what it would, might do to your husband's, you know, business or career or what it might do to your children and your family. And it's a lot.
0: Yeah. So I have pulled together a lesson plan for people that basically lays out modified versions of the and Great. translated versions okay. of these three documents. And, um, they, you know, really lay out and, and are very similar to one another. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, when we read the Declaration of Independence, you can hear Lockean ideas embedded in it. And shouldn't women have the same opportunity to hear the enlightenment ideas from their European sisters across the pond, Mm -hmm. um, talking about, you know, talking about these same, these, these things and and the ways that women across borders can have solidarity with one another. Right. Um, and And
1: similarities no matter the government.
0: Right. And we spend a lot of time in government classes and in literature classes talking about the rhetoric of the Declaration of Independence and how powerful and ahead of its time it was. And I think the fact that these documents were so controversial and maybe, um, not as, as, um, The fact that these documents were so controversial during their time should tell us a little bit about the boundaries that they were pushing about the role of women and the rights of women and the view that the society at large, women included, you know, had about women having those rights. Um, and. And why not give students an opportunity to read founding documents that did include women in in them instead of just having the caveat of, well, and of course we know that that didn't include women, but whatever. Yeah. Why not actually show what they tried to include? Yeah.
1: It's impressive. It would be a, actually, I think about it from like an unconscious bias uh, perspective and lens as you take that document, make it about men mm. and see if anyone has a problem with it. Mm. It's like, well, then now it's all about women. Yeah. Where does your lens go? Right. So men were allowed to see these things, but women were not.
0: Right. Well, and there's parallels between, it, you know, in the French Revolution, between the document that the men produced and the document that Olympia produced. And in the American Revolution, the Declaration of Independence and yep. the Declaration of Sentiments, the parallels are, are abundantly obvious. And it would it would be a really powerful lesson, I think, to juxtapose those, those documents yep. and have students look at it. Um, but I also think a question worth asking is are there any rights listed here by these women from the 1790s and 1840s that still have not moved. been achieved yeah. or moved um and and I think you will find that there are some in the declaration of sentiments it talks about um you know making her feel um worthless and, you know, part of this podcast's aim is to undo this idea that um, the value of women is lower than men. Yeah. And we should be including them in our in our curriculum. In all things. Yeah. And in all things.
1: Amazing. What an interesting topic. Thanks, Brooke. Yeah. Thank you, Kelsey. I'm Brooke Sullivan.
0: I'm Kelsey Eckert.
1: Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story. The other 50 percent. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.